well, it's uh, such an encouragement to hear just all the saints singing. For me, just, I don't know what it was about this morning, but so encouraging to hear you all. If you have your Bibles, our sermon text this morning will be from Romans 8. Romans 8, 1 through 17. As you turn in there, before we read the sermon text, I want to tell you what the focus of the text is. Romans 8 has been referred by some as maybe the greatest chapter and the greatest letter ever written. How do you feel about that? Everyone has their preferences. But ever since I, you know, settled on a passage, picked this text, I've been wrestling with whether I should. The theological depth of Romans can really probably never be mined or realized in this life. And so this is a, some sense, a daunting task. But it was also a humbling task because I quickly saw and experienced how convicting this passage of Scripture was. It exposes the heart, exposed my heart. However, I'm also thankful for this passage because really of the glorious promise for those of us who struggle in this Christian life. This is really what I want you to be left with at the end of the sermon is that I want you to have hope in the gospel. Hope that Christ has really set you free from bondage and a spirit of slavery. Hope that in this life you can actually become more like him. But what you'll find is that this text has also truths that are difficult to grasp for our souls. Not because they're necessarily hard to understand, but we're hard-headed. So I want to address those in this room as we continue. Those who are unbelievers in this room. My intention, if you're listening right now, is to let you know that the sermon not only describes those you know here who are believers, in some sense this describes you too. For we all have a sin nature. For the believer, the sin nature takes them farther than they want to go. It leaves them desperate for the gospel hope. And which Lamentations 3 says is new every morning. Their struggle, the Christian struggle in their everyday life is, is to put their hope in Christ alone. That their sin nature affects them every day. But they have the spirit of Christ working in them. And for you... If you're an unbeliever, your sin nature has complete dominion over your life. You're you're in sin. And being in sin, you cannot please God. So if you're here to try to please God, it, it doesn't please him. But the beautiful thing is that even today, you're offered the free gift of the gospel. So that if you believe and put your trust in Christ... You actually do please God because Christ has already done it for you perfectly. The Christian life is not about getting saved and then going back into legalism of our own efforts. The gospel is one that saves and one that sustains forever. And you have been set free, which serves as our sermon title this morning. So Romans 1, 1 through 17, and then we'll pray. Romans 8, 1 through 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Christ, by your spirit, hearing your word, responding to your word. Father, we're here to worship you, We're here to proclaim your praise. We're here to proclaim your praise to one another so that we might hope. That we might not look to ourselves. That we might be lifted up to the immortal, invisible. But to also be reminded of what a savior you are. So, Father, I pray for those in this room. I pray for the members of Providence Baptist Church this morning. Father, would you reassure them of the gospel, that they have been set free, that there is hope. Father, help us to stop living like we are in bondage. Father, I pray for Will and Jonathan at First Baptist in South Houston. Father, that the the same gospel message that's being preached here would be preached there. And that from their mouths would would come clarity, truth, and your wisdom from your word. And those people might be transformed. Well, I pray all these things in Jesus' name, by your spirit. Amen. I praise God to see Tommy back here uh, this this morning after recovering from his illness. And next week, he'll be leading us back through Luke. Let us, in the meantime, excited to proclaim God's word to you this morning. But before we really dive into Romans 8 in particular since this is kind of a a one-off sermon. 
we got to look at some background, some background to our text is in order. Really, really, we need to grasp the concept of, of Romans, but we need to grasp especially chapter 7. So here's a brief theological survey of Romans up until this point. Not everything's not exhaustive here. Chapter 1, we have the, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes in chapter 1. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. We have that the wrath of God, however, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That the world did not see fit to honor God as God, though they clearly perceive God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature ever since the creation of the world. Then in chapter 2, we have that God is righteous in his judgment of sinners. For all have sinned and will perish under the law, and all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. In chapter 3, we have that God's righteousness is upheld despite the unfaithfulness of his people and really all people, that, that no one is righteous, that no, not one. And despite his patience and forbearance of sin, God's righteousness is upheld, is vindicated from all accusations in the cross of Christ. So now we have the righteousness of God that is manifested made clear, made known to us apart from the law. It's made known to us through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then in chapter four, faith has always been the means of justification. Abraham was not justified by works, but by faith. He believed God's promise and the text says it was credited to him as righteousness. And all of this was before Abraham was circumcised. Therefore, All of God's promised seed, his descendants, his offspring to Abraham are not justified by being physical descendants or by keeping the law. All of God's justified people were those who follow after Abraham in faith. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Then chapter 5, we have justification or a right standing with God. That it's made clear that that's by faith alone. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, now we have peace. We have peace with our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, justification ensures our reconciliation with God. And that's the free gift of eternal life from being united to Christ by faith is greater than the curse of death that was given to us by being united to Adam from the fall. So text says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then in chapter 6, If then we have been justified by faith and grace is reigning through the righteousness of Christ, ought we continue to sin that this grace may abound? By no means. Because being united to Christ in his death and resurrection, you you need to consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to to make you obey its passions. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. 
Don't go back to slavery, to sin. I'm in chapter seven. We'll spend a little bit more time here looking at the context before jumping into chapter eight. And here in chapter seven, Paul is speaking to Romans who know the law. That's what the first verse says. And he is telling them that they are free or have been released from its bondage. In fact, you have actually died to the law, Paul says, through the body of Christ. Not, now, this is, this is interesting language because Paul talks this way of sin, that we have died to sin because of Christ. We learn this in, five, in chapter 5 and 6, that you have been released from that power of sin because you have been united to Christ in his death, so you no longer have to obey its passions. You've been set free from sin. You have died to sin. And interesting, Paul is using that similar language here for being released from the bondage of the law. He gives an example of a woman who is bound by law to her husband, to the covenant of marriage as long as he is alive, meaning she cannot be permitted, according to the law, to live with another man. If she is married, her husband is alive and her husband is alive, then she is married, and she cannot change. She cannot go out of this covenant. Because living with another, while under another man's roof, so to speak, would be breaking the law of marriage. If she did this, she would be an adulteress. She is bound by the law of marriage to that one husband. But once her husband dies, she is free to marry another man. She won't be considered an adulteress. So Paul tells the Romans, you know, the law, your situation is very similar. You were once bound by the law, but the law aroused passions in us that bore fruit for death. But now you have died to that which held you captive. It's like that husband, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order to bear fruit for God? That raises an important question. If the law keeping was, if the law was keeping them in bondage or even arousing their sinful passions that led to death, is the law bad? Paul says no. The law is not bad because it's through the law, Paul says, that I came to understand what sin is. Paul then gives an example of covetousness, which is deadly. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But he says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. His point is kind of like, it's not exactly like this, but when you tell someone, don't think about an elephant with three legs. It's quite impossible. For even when you deny the thinking about that elephant with three legs, you're thinking about an elephant with three legs. That image is probably going to be stuck in your brain all day. (laughs) But it's kind of like that, but not exactly. You ever told one of your young children to to not be jealous, to, to not covet, they say when they're real young, what, what is that? What, is, what does jealous mean? What does covet mean? And you tell them that coveting is when you see someone else, see what someone else has, 
and you'll want it. And you start loving that thing or that idea of that thing that someone else has more than you love God. And one of your kids answers, yeah, I do that a lot. And then you're going about your daily life and you're like, oh, oh there, there I go again. But look at that shiny object. I, I keep coveting. I'm a covetous person. Just a brief word on coveting, the dangers of it. A guy named Jason Halopoulos, I can't pronounce it well, but said, he says that coveting pulls the heart down into the pit of self-seeking and the muck and mire of envy, slander, adultery, pride, dishonor, murder, thievery, and idolatry. It has rightly been said that when we break any of the first nine commandments, we also break the 10th commandment. So Paul says, when this commandment, do not covet, you should not covet, sin came alive and I died. It wasn't that things weren't happening before, right? But now that I know, according to the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, really my desirous affections for other things begins to to fit the description of covetousness. I mean, all of a sudden, I know what the law says, but, but I keep on sinning. I, I keep on coveting. And Paul says it's not that the law is bad. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The law is good. So the Romans um, say, I'm, I'm a little confused. Did that which is good, meaning the law, produce death in me? I mean, I'll notice Paul's response. By no means. Sin is what produced death in me, but it produced that death through this good law. The purpose here is that the good law is exposing sin so that the sin is considered sinful beyond measure. In other words, it was recognized for what it truly is. And then Paul in Romans 7 goes on after this, to describe an experience that is, I think, very pertinent to the sermon this morning. He goes on to describe the inner wrestling of someone who has delighted in the law of God, who wants to do the law, who, who wants to do what is right but cannot. Chapter 7 to 15 through 20 says this, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And we won't spend too much time, but we'll be referencing this throughout. But what Paul is saying here is that his new nature is at odds with his old nature. His new man is battling his old man. And it's not in the sense like you would think in those cartoons with an angel on one shoulder and then Satan on the other shoulder. It's not like that. So it's not like that. What's, what's going on here? 
Paul describing competing affections. Do I want sin? Do I want to do what's right? No. Paul is saying that he delights in the law. That he wants to do what is right. That he has the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I, I see what is right. I agree with the law that it is good. I, I, I want to carry it out. Let me fulfill the law. And then fail. So what's Paul trying to say here? His point is that you cannot perfectly fulfill the law. There might be some times that you do what the law requires, but even though you desire it, you you can never fulfill it because of your sin nature. You do the things that you don't want to do. Wretched man that I am, Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? His answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because it is in Christ in whom our hope is. Then Paul concludes this, this kind of wrestling of his inner man, his old self, his new self, wrestling with the law by saying, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This brings us to our text on Romans 8. Where in verse 1, Paul reminds us that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And after wading through this wrestling of wanting to do and keep God's law, but sin lying close at hand in chapter 7, if you understand the gospel here, it's like drinking cold water on a hot day. I know some of you odd people don't like cold water. You will never understand. I want to do the law. I agree with the law that is good. I want to carry it out. Fail, try again. Fail, try again. Fail. So Paul's reassuring the believers when he says, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, should we alleviate a sigh of relief? In some sense, I should have been knocked over in this pulpit with all the breath that's coming out. Sometimes it's like the wind in our sails is gone. We have have forgotten what hope is. Listen to what Paul says in verses 2 through 4. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You have been set free. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So you have been set free from the bondage to the law that Paul talks about in Romans 7. Can the law bring you to salvation? 
because of our sin nature, because of our flesh. This is therefore why Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and upheld the law perfectly. We say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our Lord did it in a way that we cannot. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And doing so, condemned sin through his living in the flesh. This has two meanings in some sense. Certainly, Christ on the cross has put an end to the power of sin in our lives so that although we have a sin nature and we still wrestle with indwelling sin, as Paul demonstrates in chapter 7, we're not slaves to it any longer. That is, we have been set free to a life in Christ that is no longer under the bondage of sin. Christ condemns sin, too. Christ condemns sin through his being in the likeness of sinful flesh, but being without sin. We are like Paul, who who learned about covetousness and then his sin through the understanding of the awareness of the law, produced covetousness. Jesus, however, does not have a sin nature but he did come in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was confronted with the same law that says, you shall not covet. But unlike us, he came out of that encounter perfect. That in and of itself is is amazing. So in other words, by being in the flesh like us, by not having a sin nature, And then encountering the law, but remaining sinless, by this he is said to have condemned sin in the flesh. It doesn't have to be either or. He has canceled its power on the cross by his death, but he's also canceled its power and condemned it. Because when he encountered the same law, being in the likeness of sinful flesh, it didn't lead him to death. He condemned it. Sin is brought to light through the law. This kind of sin that's brought to light through the law has lost its power. Because it couldn't make Jesus submit to it and obey it. The law couldn't evoke anything for Jesus to transgress it. But this is what Paul means in verse 3 when he says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. And then we come to verse 4, which continues on in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. To walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, so Christ, by his life and being in the likeness of sinful flesh and by his death on the cross, has condemned sin. And then we have verse 4, it tells us why. Read it again. 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As we look at verse 4, this verse is, in this passage of Romans is one of the most debated. I mean, some theologians and commentators I really love are on both sides here. And I think the hardest for me is that I disagree with Calvin on this. Um, I think he's reacting too far to the Roman Catholic Church. Then I found myself, after much wrestling, agreeing with guys like Sproul, John Murray, and Derek Thomas. It's kind of odd because they're reformed, both reformed. However, one of the biggest help was a conversation I had with Tommy, actually, last night around 7. Talking to him, just, here's what I think, and here's what's going on, and, you know. I love Sproul. I agree with him on this text, but it seemed like he was reacting in that time against the antinomians, those, those free grace guys who say that the law doesn't even matter. That, don't worry about it. You're in grace. And then Calvin was on the other spectrum against the Roman Catholics who find salvation through penance and keeping the law. So he's going to see this text as only imputation of Christ's righteousness, justification. So while I agree with Sproul and Derek Thomas and John Murray, Really, it was, it was really assuring when I was talking to Tommy, and we were, it seemed like we we're on the same page. You may disagree, but I think we were on the same page, and so that helped me a lot. So if you disagree with me here, you can go talk to him. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but I'm responsible for these views I present, so you can talk to me. Anyways, what does that mean? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Remember, Christ condemned sin in his flesh so that its power would no longer have a stronghold over us. So now we've been set free. And we have been set free in this Christian life not to walk according to the flesh, trying to fulfill the law, but to walk according to the Spirit. So verse 4 is saying that Christ's condemnation of sin through his perfect life in the flesh and by his death has made it to where we are now able by walking in the Spirit to in some sense fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Now here's what I don't mean. I don't mean, as we stated before, that you can fulfill the law perfectly in this life. Paul in Romans 7, and really the rest of Scripture testifies to the fact that we can't, by our own efforts, even as Christians, fulfill the law perfectly. But in the past, where I could not kill sin because I only had a sin nature, I can now kill sin by walking in the Spirit. The believer in this life struggles with sin and ends up crying out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then Paul reminds us that Christ Jesus did. He condemns sin so that no longer can. Through the law, hold you captive to make you obey its passions. And this is the wrestling and struggle of the Christian. That's why verse 4 says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh or our sin nature, 
but according to the Spirit. In this life, the believer falls into sin, battles the flesh, and can often feel deflated and long for that day when there is no more sin. That's really what the second half of Romans 8 is about. We won't look at that today. But it should just suffice to say that we ought not feel defeated by sin. As though it has some permanent hold on us. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Sin has been condemned. And we who are believers in Christ have the indwelling Holy Spirit who can walk in this Christian life in the Spirit. You may say, what is... What even is it to walk in the Holy Spirit? I, he- I hear that, but I don't understand that. Glad you asked, because the next three verses speak to this very issue. Let's look at verse 5, Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. For to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, and it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, Paul is explaining here the manner by which one walks by the Spirit. He says that it's related to the way in which one walks by the flesh. How does one walk by the flesh? They set the minds on the things of the flesh. This flows right out of Paul's example of covetousness. Because covetousness is something that happens in the mind, in the heart of man. Commenting on verse 6 here, John Owen says that our Ordinary, voluntary thoughts are the best measure and indication of the farm of our minds. He goes on to say that you can tell the true disposition of the heart by the predominant voluntary thoughts that come. He says, they are the original, original actings of the soul, the way whereby the heart puts forth and empties the treasure that is in it. So it does this emptying of the treasures of the heart, empties it out. And and Owen says primarily he does this by the thoughts of the mind. If the heart be evil, they're for the most part vain, filthy, corrupt, wicked, foolish, the thoughts. But if the heart is under the principle of the power of grace, And so has good treasure in it. It puts forth itself by thoughts suitable unto its nature. And it's compliant with its inclination. So in a very real sense, this is what Paul means by one who walks in the flesh, who sets his mind on the things of the flesh. In other words, what you set your mind on affects how you walk in this life. Which is why Paul says, for set, to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Therefore, you, you want to know how to walk according to the spirit? 
Occupy your mind with the things of the Spirit of Christ. But on the other hand, if you, if you want to walk in the flesh in this world, then occupy your minds with the things of the flesh, the things of this world. Here is a point where I think there's maybe some disconnect in how we sometimes read this passage in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Often, this is just chalked up to paganism. In some sense, Paul says that the one who has their mind set on the flesh is death, is hostile or at enmity with God. It cannot submit to God's law. In fact, the idea is that it's impossible for the mind set on the flesh to please God. So, so in, in one sense, I completely agree with that sentiment that thinks of this mainly in terms of paganism. But we have to remember that Paul is talking to believers in Rome. Believers who know the law. In other words, Paul's not just making a blanket statement telling the Romans about pagans who walk according to the mindset on the things of the world. We have that done in Romans 1 through 3. But the context here suggests that Paul is referencing something particular. In some sense, he's warning the Romans not to set their minds on the things of the flesh because those who do will, one, it will end in death. Absolutely. But two, it says it cannot please God. We, we all get one and agree with one, but where Paul says that setting the mind on the flesh will end in death, but, but who is thinking, you know? I wonder if those people who are setting the minds on the things of the flesh can actually please God. So so I think the point that Paul is trying to make here is really important. That the Romans who were tempted to set their minds on the things of the flesh were Romans who knew God's word and were trying to live up to it. In other words, these are believers. They're, They're trying to please God, as Paul describes in Romans 7. I delight in the law in my inner being. But but every time I desire to do what's right, I fail. I I fall short of my efforts. I end up committing the very sin that the the law warned me about. So Paul says, wretched man that I am. Paul's warning them about trying to please God according to the flesh, according to trying to fulfill the law in their own efforts. The Reformed talk about this is total inability that idea that this unconverted person cannot move towards good or, or please God because he, his will is in bondage, as Martin Luther says, and chained to sin, unable to pursue God. And, and so, in, and yes, I agree, in one sense, this is what Paul is talking about. The one who is in the flesh cannot please God. But the other dynamic is also true, that there is a warning to believers not to set their minds on things of the flesh and so walk according to the flesh as unbelievers do. And so the point for the Roman Christians who know the law is this. You cannot be sanctified by your own effort. You cannot kill sin by your own efforts. By by using man-made devices, you cannot be sanctified. I want to give you an illustration. There's two scenarios. One way speaks to an attempt to set your mind on the flesh in order to please God. 
in order to be sanctified. Another speaks to setting your mind on the Spirit, being sanctified by the Spirit. And for the record, what I'm about to talk about, pastors struggle with this distinction scenario all the time. And I would say most people struggle with this. I struggle with this distinction. Now here's the first scenario. A woman sitting down with another woman in the church, some church. They've been friends for a long time. First woman, Lisa, says the other one, Susan, listen, I've been struggling with discontentment and covetousness. My, my husband is always busy. He, he's always stressed out. Our family isn't being led in family worship. And when I, when I come to the church, I see all these other godly men leading their families. Be it, being attentive to their wives, spending time with their children. I struggle because I wish I had that husband. And Susan, the woman listening, thinks for a moment and says, well, I think I know what the solution is. Lisa, really, what is it? I think, and I'm just taking a wild guess here because I think you already know this, but in some sense, your, your, your selfishness is preventing you from seeing the real issue and the real solution. You need, you need to glorify God by lovingly submitting and serving your husband. You need to stop coveting other husbands in the church. And then you're going to see what the Lord will do. Lisa says, you know, you know, you're right. I haven't been loving him the way that God would have me. If I want to act, him to actually lead, I, gotta, I have to be less selfish. I need to glorify God in my actions. Now, on one level... This is really practical advice, right? I mean, when we identify sin here, when we, when we realize and we, we're talking to a friend, we all have those friends. I hope you have friends like that. And they help you to see the reality and call you to repentance, to glorify God by loving and serving. It's practical. It, it prevents Lisa from focusing on that which she can't control. It tells her to do what is pleasing to God, which God calls wives to do, namely to, to lovingly submit and love through being his helper. So again, this is very practical, straightforward advice. But this scenario lacks something. It actually lacks the gospel. Susan has just told Lisa, go to try, go try to please God in the flesh. Now, before you stone me here for railing against practical advice, because in some sense, we might all give this advice to those who we know well on some level. I mean, it's practical, helpful, and probably good advice for some. So on some level, it is right to, to do this. We're telling people sin doesn't please God. We need, to, we need to continue to do that. We cannot shy away from saying that sin does not please God. But the point is that this is missing the gospel. Now imagine the same scenario. Lisa tells Susan, you know, listen, I've been, I've been struggling with disconnect, discontent and covetousness. My husband is always busy. 
stressed out. Family isn't being led. But at about the time that Lisa finishes telling her about the other husbands who are better, Susan stops her and says, Lisa, don't you realize that your husband's a sinner? Lisa responds, you know, yeah, that's the problem. He won't stop sinning. Susan says, no, Lisa, don't you understand that, that Christ died for sinners? Yes, 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 I know. Susan says, no, Lisa. The nails that were driven through Christ's hands and feet, the scourges, the blood gushing from his side, dripping from his thorny crown, the kiss of betrayal, the denial by Peter, the rejection of his own people, the weight of the sin of the world, the darkness of the abandonment of the Father, all of that. Christ died for your husband. And Lisa, if Christ went through all of that for your husband, don't you think he can finish the work that he started? Right now, Christ is praying for him, interceding on his behalf, that he would know his love more and more. What do you think Lisa's response might be this time? If indeed the Spirit is at work in her. So God, forgive me for my covetous heart. Please help my husband to know your love and that he might glorify you and have joy in you. Help me to be his helpmate. Would you work in me by your Holy Spirit? Don't you see, brothers and sisters, you have been set free from the bondage of the flesh. Don't you see that you cannot please God in the flesh? And all Lisa from the first scenario heard was that, that she ought not covet that God disapproves of it. Really, she learned how to love her husband for her own sake. She learned, but so soon realized because she's trying to please God by setting her mind on the flesh, that she will not be able to not covet. That she won't be able to please God. But the Lisa from the second scenario, we have Susan helping her set the things of the Spirit, her mind on the things of the Spirit. And so Lisa responds by walking in the Spirit. And really that's, what ha- that's happening. It's precisely what Paul's talking about in Romans uh, 7, 6. He says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What is really happening? Those who set the mind on the Spirit are, in fact, killing sin at its source. It's really killing sin at the deepest level, unbelief in the gospel. And see, Lisa initially realized that she's being covetousness, that she, she really needed help. She's trying to set her mind on the flesh. She's trying to serve in the old way of the written code. But Paul reminds the Romans, and for us in this matter, in, in, in 8, Chapter 8, 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What a joyous This sin nature that I have, this flesh that that makes me said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, that there is a promise for that. That although the body is dead because of sin, not able in the flesh to please God, if Christ is in you, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that same Holy Spirit will give life to your mortal body. So there's hope. Christ's righteousness has provided life to us through the Spirit. So what does this look like practically for us? Let's read verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. In other words, you don't owe your old sin nature anything. There's nothing you need to try to accomplish through it. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So there's a way to kill sin, or as the Puritans used to say it, we had learning in some sense on Wednesdays, there's a way to mortify the flesh. We've been learning that you cannot kill sin by the flesh. You cannot keep the law by the flesh. And really, that sounds so silly when you say it out loud a few times. That's something that we really do. We hear the gospel and think, okay, I'm in. Now let me sanctify myself. Let me become more holy by giving lots of effort and trying to kill sin really hard. That's really only a part gospel. The gospel not only saves and justifies getting us in, it's not less than that, but it is also the gospel that which sanctifies us. It's what conforms us to the image of Christ. If that's not confidence enough for you, look what Paul says, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with them. So do not only do we have the Spirit indwelling in us. And by the Spirit, we are enabled to set our minds on the things of the Spirit and thus walk in the Spirit. We have been given the Spirit, which is not a spirit of fear. That we must go back to the beginning where we were under slavery to sin, unable to fulfill the law. No. We now have the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, and this is not of our own doing. 
although we're the ones crying out. It's the Spirit himself who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's the Holy Spirit himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of Christ. It's the Spirit that's breathed out from the Father that bears witness with us that we are children of God. What a comfort this is. Of all the things that we can do that can be confused, trying to walk according to the flesh, continue the effort of holiness in the Christian life by the flesh, the one thing that we can know for sure is that when we cry out for help, Abba, Father, it's a confirmation that we are sons and daughters of God. It's assurance because it is the Spirit working in us to cry out. And Paul assures us that if we are children, sons and daughters, then we're also heirs. But heirs to whom? It's amazing. Astonishingly, astonishingly, we're, we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him, nor that we may also be glorified with him, united to him. See, in order to kill sin, in order to fulfill the law in this life, you cannot do it by the flesh. As we have seen, we can never really do it completely. But if you're like Paul, wrestling wretched man that I am, I do the things that I don't want, and the things that I do I hate, This is a constant theme for Paul. In Colossians chapter 3 and verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ himself must be our vision. Because the gospel is the only thing that can pierce the heart and motivate the believer to love, to put off the flesh. I mean, all of us have been where Lisa and Susan have been in different scenarios, really trying hard to do what's right, but not getting anywhere what Lisa really needed and, and really what, what I need and what you need for that matter because this is not a scenario that only applies to wives. It applies to all of us. Husbands coveting their wives, children coveting, wishing they had better parents, men and women in the church who just can't seem to do anything right in this Christian life, envying others, when they, when they start trying to love others, they fail. When they start trying to read the Bible more, they fail. When they are encouraged to pray more, fail. When they're going through suffering, what is, your, what is your mindset on? Usually not how God would be glorified in this suffering. But the solution is rarely to tell someone or, or to really tell yourself that in order to glorify God, you must tell yourself, what are you coveting? Stop coveting. 
the solution is to tell yourself and others the gospel. Because that's who we talk to most, right? Our covetous heart. Remember what is promised to you. Oh, covetous heart, remember the riches of his grace for all eternity are promised to you. You don't need those things. You have an tre- infinite treasure offered you. Consider how glorious those things are. Consider that even though everyone else seems to have what you don't, that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, had nowhere to lay his head. Consider that even though you did not get that promotion at work, Christ, who was the most observing of praise in this world, was rejected, beaten, and killed. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the gospel is the power of God. It isn't just powerful. It itself is powerful. It's the power of God. If you want to kill sin in this life, remember, you have been set free from bondage. Remember the gospel. Remember Christ in his person suffering for you. Because Christ is the only real way that you can please God. All fleshly efforts fall short. We need the one who has done it for us. We need the spotless, the perfect Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. So I pray that you have hope in the gospel. For those of you who are unbelievers here, what blessed hope is there to have one who on your behalf condemned sin and lived perfectly because you cannot. Trust in him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of Christ and by your spirit, and I ask that anything that is not truth, would you rip it from the minds of the people? That only the gospel would be left that only Christ Jesus would be their ever thought. That you, O God, would be our vision. We would set our minds on the things of the Spirit, O God. Work in us that we would be gospel people. Father, teach us, strengthen us who have weak knees. your glory and our good in Jesus' name.